How do you know when the gospel has got a grip on your money? Or I would maybe say it this way, how do you know when God has got a grip on your money? Now, it's funny because we just finished this series on, I told you, love and sex and culture. And I was at the gym and there was somebody that stopped me there because we've done some very challenging messages recently. And uh, the person said to me, well, let me ask you, Pastor, who is the church? They started it out that way. Who is the church to tell anybody? And what he was really asking is, and he sort of rephrased it, who is anybody to tell another person how they ought to live? And that is a great question. Of course, it brings up the broader question. Who can tell us what is right? Who can do that? Who can tell us as human persons what is noble or what is good or what is moral? Now, the answer truly would be nobody can do that unless there was somebody outside of us or above us, unless there was somebody that was outside of time who was so far above us that they could come and tell us what is good and what is noble and what is true. And I would say, as I told the person in the gym, you know, the Christian believes that God manifests himself in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to reveal his nature and to tell us what is good. So with all due respect, you're right, I can't tell you. The church can't tell you, but Jesus can, and we like to study his words. Because listen, God looks at life, and he looks at all the facets of our life, and he says, don't you see, I'm the one that invented work. I'm the one that invented relationships. I'm the one that invented sex. God says, don't you see that I'm the one that invented money? I invented all things. I know how all things are supposed to operate. So I can actually give you direction on how to use these things. And the Christian's job is to then go to his word and say, well, what has been said about this stuff? And we prayerfully take these things to God, which is what we're doing today. Now, I will say money is an interesting thing. We have all sorts of slogans for money. You know some of them. For example, I'll say the first two, I'll say the first three words, you finish it. You ready? Show me the Yeah, we all know that. All right, let me, let me quiz you on another one. You ready? Money is? No, wrong. <laughs> money, it's a, the slogan is not money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil evil. Money really isn't the root of all evil. There's really not a problem with money, but loving it too much. All right, anybody know another one? Money is what? Money is? I might have heard it out there. Have you ever heard this one? Go ahead and show this on the screen. Money is what? Power. Now, that is a saying. I've seen bumper stickers on that. Now, whether you agree with this or not, people say it, and here's why they say it. Because in truth, money can be a measure of how much of the world you actually get to control. That's true. How much power that you're able, how much power you have to choose stuff. Let me give you an example. If you want to go out to eat today after church, the more money you have, the more choices you have. Would you say that's right? Sure it is. Of course it is. For example, when I go out to eat today after church, I get to go to McDonald's. Some of you, you know, you're going to go out to eat after church today, and you may go to Ruth Chris because the more money you have, the more choices you have. Some of you are going to say Taco Bell. You you guys follow me, right? The more money you have, the more diversity of drinks you can order at Starbucks. By the way, did I mention our cafe when we build it's going to be better than Starbucks? Okay, just saying. Now, listen, 
The more money you have, the more choices you have when you go to your closet. There are ladies in here, you have so many shoes. Come on, give me an amen. I mean, the more money you have, the more shoes you might be able to wear, the more clothes you might be able to wear, the more options you've got for men. Maybe it's the more ties you have, whatever it is. The more money you have, and let's say your car breaks down, you're going to have multiple options now. You can get a repair. You can go to somebody better than this person. You may have to go to the junk dealer. You get my point. The more choices. Now, listen, guys. That's what money is. Money is actually a measure of how much of the world you control because it's a measure of your ability to choose. Now, I have a question for you. Another question. Everybody ready? Does that make money good or bad? What do you think? It's neutral, right? Some of you are saying that right now. That doesn't make money good or bad. It's neutral. In fact, somebody said this to me. I was telling you about our earlier, uh, I was telling you about our earlier series, Love, Sex, and Culture, and the person at the gym I was telling you about, he walked up to me, and at one point of the earlier sermons, he said, now, Pastor, let me get this straight. I forgot. Is sex good or is sex bad? And it's like, well, <laughs> let me ask you a question. First of all, lower your voice. We're in the gym. But he says, but pastor, is sex good or is sex bad? And it's like, okay, well, let me ask you a question. Is fire good or is fire bad? See, this is something my youth pastor used to say. And you know the answer. Well, it all depends on where the fire is, don't you think? If the fire is in the fireplace, fire is good. If the fire is destroying California... If a log of fire is out on your living room floor, at the very best, you're going to have a scar. At the very worst, your whole house is going to burn down. So you have to understand, it just depends on the context. Well, guys, listen, the same is true of this stuff we call money. Money is real neither good nor bad. It's all about the context. So I want for you to write this down when we're thinking about the nature of money, and we're spending four weeks to talk about this, that that money, will, money can act either constructively in your life or destructively. It can either create joy or destroy your joy depending on how you use it. Because, listen, guys, there is something about money that is very deep in human nature when we talk about what money is. I'm going to make a couple of statements, and you might not understand them at first because I wasn't quite sure how to say it. But let me just say it this way. Here's the first part about the nature of money. Money, first of all, was designed to bring human people dignity. If you'd write that down. Money was designed to bring us dignity. And in that way, it's not, you know, superfluous. It's not silly. What I mean is money answers something that we're going to talk about in a minute, that, that there is something deep down within us that God has put deep in our hearts. What is that that's deep in our hearts? Friends, every human being, every person that lives, every man or woman here today or watching, we all have a need to have part, to have a part of the world that we care for. Without some part of the world to care for, some way to be productive or do something significant, we don't really have dignity. Money was actually designed to bring a person dignity. Now, what has happened to most of us is, because of the effect of sin, instead of money becoming our dignity, I'll put it this way, money has become our definition. And that's different. 
And when that happens, when money begins to define your life, money turns into this destructive force of power when it becomes your identity and it begins to eat up your life. Because if money is the thing from where you get your personhood, then it actually no longer has the power to give you dignity. So what have I said? Money is a power. It can act destructively or constructively in your life. But here's the question. How can you be sure and how can I be sure that it's acting constructively? How can I know that money is building joy in my life as opposed to destroying my life? Because it really is neutral. Now guys, here's what I'm going to say to you right at the beginning. This is very important. The Bible is very clear in multiple times and in multiple places that it all depends upon your heart. It really is not how much money you have or how little money you have. It depends on your heart's attitude. That's what really makes the difference. By the way, this is why we call this series Signs. Because we're saying, how do you know that the gospel has a grip on your heart? It's not the money that's bad, but it's, it's the motor that's driving you. That's why last week we talked about remarkable generosity because if you've come to Jesus and he's gripped your heart, that should manifest in a desire to be generous and give to others. It's why next week we will be talking about enthusiastic stewardship because there's something that happens when Jesus comes into your life that you want to be a good steward of what God has given. Today we're talking about overflowing joy because when we give, it brings us joy to give. Now, that's one of the signs. Well, in this passage that was just read to you guys, there are three principles that I'm going to draw out, just three of them. And I want to say to you, if you constantly do the three principles, if you work them down into your heart, do you know what I mean by work them down into your heart? Ha ha anybody here ever baked cookies? Have you ever baked cookies and you're trying to get the chocolate chips to go into the dough? It's like, if you could like do that with these principles, it's like making chocolate chip cookies and getting those chips down into that dough. It takes time, it takes energy, you might get tired doing it, but if you work at it, money won't be your definition, it'll be your dignity, and that will bring joy in your life. And listen, guys, here's what I want for each one of you. I'm t we're taking the time as pastors to teach this because I want each of you to know that you've lived your life Handling money so well that God will look at you and say, well done. You used what I gave you, and that will bring you much joy. So let me give you the three principles. Are you ready? I touched on two last week. I'm going to teach on them today. If you remember, I said there are things that motivate a Christian. There's creation and redemption. I'm going to speak to that each a little differently today. But here's the first principle. Here we go. Number one, write this down. First principle is that God owns everything. Now, this passage is a fundraising letter. Did you know that? Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're backing up a chapter. Today we're in chapter 8, and Paul is really trying to raise money for the poor in Jerusalem. He's talking to the Corinthians, and he's trying to get the Corinthians to give, and he talks about the Macedonians and how much they've given. Because, boy, I'll tell you, the Macedonians have given. And I'd like to tell you what happened, and I'd like to tell you why it happened. But before I do that, I want you to think about yourself for a minute. Think about you. Are you generous? Are you a giver? Has the gospel got a grip on the way you use your money? Or 
Is it too possible, is it too possible that money has too much of a hold on you? That it's become too much of your definition? You say, well, how do I know that? Well, let me ask you, do you worry about money all the time? (laughs) Do you envy people who have money? By the way, have you ever noticed nobody actually thinks they're rich? Have you ever noticed that? If you go to a rich guy and say, hi, you say, hey, how'd you get to be rich? They'd say, I'm not rich. You know why? Because they're always looking at the guy above them. We all do that. Now, we happen to live in a very wealthy country. There is a sense in which we're all rich. But do you have the envy of people that have more? I mean, do you envy them, the people that have more than you? Or is there an affection to the stuff that you have? Or you just, you have to be comfortable. See, this, is, this helps you understand, is this defining my life? Now, Paul shows us here why these Corinthians needed to be liberated and why the Macedonians were liberated. They needed to be free, the Corinthians, from money as their definition. And, 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 the, and the Macedonians had that. They were able to release the power of God. Why? Because of first, this principle, God owns everything. And listen to me, friend. If God owns everything, if that's true, that he does... What does that make you? Write this down. It makes you a trustee. If God owns everything that you have, you have to act like a trustee. Now, in verses two through five, look at what he says about the Macedonians and why they gave. He said, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, there are the words, and their extreme poverty welled up into what? Rich generosity. He says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able. Why? Because it says, this is the key, it says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Let me read that again. They gave themselves first to the who? And then as a result of giving themselves to the Lord, they naturally gave themselves to people. Because if you've really given yourself to the Lord, that should manifest in you giving yourself to people. Because that's how true Christianity works in the heart. Now, if Christianity is not working that way for you, it's just about you and God, but it doesn't affect how you relate to people, you're religious, you're not a Christian. Christianity affects how you love people. And every person should examine their own heart to say, am I right with God here and how I treat others? And notice, it says these people, they were in poverty, extreme poverty. I mean, look at it. This, this extreme poverty means rock bottom poverty. And yet they still gave themselves to the Lord and they gave themselves to people. Why? What would motivate that? Well, they believed some things. They had deep conviction. What did they believe? Well, they believed this, for example. Here we go, right here on this scripture. If you guys just take a look at this next one. The earth is the whose. And how much of it? All that it contains. And the world and all those who live in it, it's all God's. Or they understood what God said in the book of Job when he says, everything under heaven belongs to me. Now again, friends, I touched on this last week when we were talking about creation. But I'm gonna say, whenever I say this idea to the average person, they normally say, well, wait a minute. How how could you tell me that? I've worked my, you know, what off, you know? I've worked my whatever off to get where I am now. To which I'd say, yeah, but who gave you that whatever? 
Why were you born where you were? Where'd you get the brain that you have? Where did you get the air to breathe? Do you realize if you were just born in this country right now where a person who delivers papers makes more than 70% of the world's laborers? Because they were born here. Now, how do you think that that happened? And do you think God's going to hold you and I accountable for that? So what does it mean that you're a trustee? It means a couple things. First, it means, if you just write this down, it means that you have things that you're supposed to take care of. You have something you're supposed to be taking care of. That's what a trustee is all about, right? If you're a trustee, you're just like Adam. You're just like the first man and woman that were created. It says, and God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and do what? Govern it. Have dominion over it. Care for it. Be responsible. In other words, creation was a gift to the first people. Adam, you're put in the world not as an owner. Adam, you're a trustee. You're supposed to take care of what I've given you. You were built for trusteeship. Listen to me. If you're not taking care of what God gave you to take care of, you don't have any human dignity. In fact, if you're not doing what Adam did and taking care of the things that God has given you to take care of, there's no real being made in the image of God. Because if you're made in the image of God like Adam, you're a trustee. And dignity comes to you as you recognize that. And you say, I was made to make a difference in this particular way with the resources that God's given me. Adam was built that way, therefore you're built that way. And friend, when you get in touch with that, that begins to bring you the joy of dignity to know that you are called to something in this life. By the way, do you know why it's so demoralizing to the human person if they're in prison? If you've ever been to visit someone in prison, why, why is it so dehumanizing? Well, I'll tell you why. It's not the bars. It's not the cramped living space. It's because if you get taken to prison, everything that you have to care for is taken away from you. Everything that gives you a purpose gets taken away. And then what happens? If you have good behavior, they start giving you some responsibilities. They start to give you some dignity. They start to give you some things to care for. But initially, they're going to take it all away, and that's the worst possible place for a human being to be. So, two parts to being a trustee. Number one, you have to have something to take care of. Now, being a part of a church, I'm going to tell you right here and now, we invite a community of people to take care of the kingdom of God with us. We say we are meant to spread hope and light and love and the gospel to every person within our sphere of influence. Would you join us in doing that? Something to take care of. But that's just the first part of being a trustee. Here's the second part of being a trustee. Are you ready? Write this down. That thing that God's given you to take care of, you've got to remember, you don't have ultimate ownership of it. Now, you might get to enjoy it, Trusteeship means that you get to enjoy it. I'll never forget, I was an intern in a youth ministry working at the People's Church, and I had this great high school pastor. You know, I enjoyed being around him, and we had this guest speaker that came and did a camp for the weekend, and then I was like 20, 21 years old, and he said to us, hey, our guest speaker, he had this really, uh, really nice Lexus that he rented, but it has to be taken back to San Francisco to the rental place. He's like, does anybody want to take that car, San Francisco? I'm like, I do. 
You know, I was the first one to raise my hand because a 20-year-old has a chance, 21, has a chance to drive it. I've got nothing to do with my time. I'm single. I'm going to San Francisco. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to go sightseeing. I'm going to do it in a Lexus. And by the way, before I leave town, I'm going to drive by my neighbors and say, look at my new ride. I'm looking. I mean, I loved it. It was fantastic. But I was a trustee. I didn't own it. Now, I could enjoy it. I enjoyed the ride. But listen, if you're a trustee, ultimately, the shots are called by the owner. What does that mean? It means that it's the owner that gets to set the priority. It's the owner's values that have to be honored. Now, guys, listen. If you don't honor the owner, and if you don't do what the owner says to do with it, what does that make you? Well, it makes you a thief. Let me illustrate. What if somebody was to give you $20,000 and just lay it in your lap? But they said to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take $4,000 and use it here, and I want you to take $4,000 and use it here, and I want you to take $4,000 and use it here, and you can keep that four for yourself. Now, they're the owner. They've made you a trustee, but they've told you where to put the money, and you decide, no, 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 I'm not going to put the money here. I'm not going to put it here. I'm going to take it and use it over here. What does that make you? It makes you an embezzler. It makes you a thief. It's not yours to take and use to do whatever you want with it. You're being stingy. You're a thief. By the way, guys, I say this sensitively, but because I know that that hurts when you think about the reality of what God says, but this is why God could look at the people of Israel in the book of Malachi. I quoted this last week. But he says in Malachi chapter 3, as it relates to the tithes and offering that goes into the place of worship, he says, I ask you, is it right for a person to cheat God? And how have you cheated me? He says, you've cheated me in the matter of what? Now, guys, this is where I want to say to you as clearly as I can, Christianity is so different than other economical systems. I'm talking to Americans, so I'm talking to people who believe in capitalism. I understand that. Or people that have been raised in a capitalistic society. But I'm telling you, Christianity is not capitalism. Why? Because capitalism says, whose money is it? It's whose money? It's your money. Capitalism says, it's your money, you earned it, you get to do whatever you want with it. Now, Let's oppose that to another system. Not capitalism, but communism or socialism. What does that say? That says it's not your money. Whose money is it? It's the people's. And you must do whatever the community needs. Christianity is different than both of those. Christianity says, whose money is it? Whose is it? It's God's. And so you must do with it as he directs and his word and through the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. That's why there's this incredible place in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. I hope you guys see this. We're just looking through the scriptures at what it says. But notice, it talks about somebody who's now come to Jesus. Let's read this together. He says, let the no longer, but let him and be. Now, do you, do you hear what that's saying? That's saying you are either a thief or you're generous. If you're not generous, you're a thief. Why is that true? It goes back to the point if you haven't written it down. Because you don't have ultimate ownership of it. God does. 
That's why. By the way, we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about enthusiastic stewardship and how we're stewards of what God's given us. But I would just ask you this question. Do you know in the Bible where God definitely says you have to use your money? Did, well, I'll just ask you this. Did you know there are places that God absolutely says you need to put money? Now, one of those places is the church. You give your tithes to the church. You don't pay your tithes to other places, and you don't pick and choose who you want a tithe to go to. You give your tithes to the church. Another thing that's biblical, and we're going to talk about this in detail next week, but another thing that's biblical is, is that you and I are supposed to, on top of our tithes, we're supposed to take care of the poor. Did you know that? We should all be in some way taking care of the poor. That's why all through the Bible you read different scriptures, and I'm just going to illustrate this once, but, but let me show you something here. Scripture says in Psalm 82, for example, notice it says, give something to the poor. What does it want you to give? Come on, everybody, what does it want you to give? Why would it call it justice? Notice it doesn't say just give generosity or just bless them. No, it says you give them what? Justice. Why? Because if you're not giving to them, it's unjust in God's eyes. We always take care of the poor. We always take care of the orphan. Give justice to the poor and to the who? The orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. God says you've got to be doing that as a believer. Why? Because God says it's my money. And if you don't, he says, you're an embezzler. You're taking what's not yours. So that's the first principle. God owns everything. You are a trustee. Here's the second principle. You ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Number two, Jesus gave everything. Now, right out here in verses 8 and 9, this is where you can see the heart of it all that was read to you earlier by our worship band. Look at what he says. Paul says, I'm not commanding you. Did you hear that? Paul says, I can't command you. Nobody can command you. Not even the apostle Paul can command you to give. I can't command you, he says, but notice he says, but I want to test the sincerity of your what? Of your love by comparing it with the giving of others. So what's he saying here? He says, I want to test whether or not you know the grace of the Lord. Well, what do you mean the grace of the Lord? Because look at how he goes on. He says in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now listen, guys, this is not a commandment, but it is a test. God says, the, the apostle says, God can command, but the apostle says, I can't command you. Pastor Shane can't command you. It's not a commandment, but it is a test. What God is saying here is you've got to put your money where your mouth is. Do you know grace? He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Do you know that? What is that? How do you know you know the grace? What does that mean, grace? Guys, here's grace. Grace is, Jesus Christ comes to you as a human person, a man or a woman, and he says, look, here's the situation. You're a sinner, and you need me. And it doesn't matter what's in your bank account, and it doesn't matter your level of integrity, and it doesn't matter your level of honesty, and it doesn't matter how good your morals have been, you are are an idiot. You are a scallywag. Everybody say scallywag. I love that word. I love using it. 
It, God looks at you and he says, you are just a little ragamuffin. That's what you are. You're no good. There is nothing good that lives in you. So he looks at you and he says, so what's happened is I have had to die for you and I've had to pay the penalty for your sin. And he says, so now that I've paid the penalty for your sin, if you receive me as your savior, if you entrust your life over to me, you have real riches that you might become rich. He says, I'll bring you into my family. That's what Core 101 is all about. I'll give you the richness of acceptance. I'll give you my righteousness. Jesus became as we are so that we can become as he is. He gives us his righteousness. He clothes us with his blood. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the idiot I am. He sees Jesus. Praise God for that because I'd be in trouble. He says, now you have the riches of my power because now I'm going to put my spirit within you and give you what you need to live after me. Now, when that happens, when I know the gospel Guys, do you know what happens? I hope this has happened to you. You begin to look at everything differently. I'll talk a little more about this in stewardship and in the next series on, and in the next uh, message after that on faith, but what happens is it begins to change you. Suddenly you realize that you're nothing and he's everything. And this is why, by the way, Jesus said it this way. Guys, you gotta see this. Best sermon that was ever given is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or on the Plain, depending on which gospel you're reading it in. But look at what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means that you know you are nothing. You're poor in spirit. It means you know that you're an idiot. You know that you're, a, you're, you know that you're doomed. But notice what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know what blessed means? Do you know what the Greek word is for it? It's the word makarios. And it literally means, defined in English, it means happy. Happy are those who see they're an idiot. That's what it's saying. Happy are those who see that they're doomed. Happy are those who see that they're nothing. And what happens is it, it brings you joy because it changes your attitude toward everything. And what it is, it's, it's liberation. It's why the Macedonians were so giving. Listen, when people ask me, how much should I give to the Lord's work? I, I say what I said last week. Do you remember how I ended last week? You say, Shane, we want to know how much to give. I say, well, just ask yourself one question. You remember it? I said, ask yourself, what's God done for me? And then you prayerfully make a decision on what you'd like to give. He gave it all for you. What are you going to do? See, liberation is when you can say, you can afford to be generous because you, know how, you have now a different source of income that has paid you so well that you can release money because you're saying, I don't care about money. I care about Jesus. There's no fear. There's no stinginess. There's no selfishness. And then you ask yourself, I'll tell you how much I'm going to give. What's it going to take to get God's work done? Because it's his money. That was the second thing that I asked you about. Do you remember? But people still say, well, okay, but how do I figure this out, pastor? And by the way, this came up in Bible studies last week. I'm so excited you guys are getting into God's word. We had lots of questions come up, I understand, in Bible studies about this. They said, how could we know, though? Give us, give us a, like a rule of thumb. Well, the Bible does give us some rules of thumb. We've already touched on one of them. Ready? Three biblical guidelines on giving. Number one is your tithe. Now again, I'm going to remind you, if you weren't here, your tithe means what? Okay. Tenth. 
your tithe means tenth. And you see this especially as an example in the Old Testament, that all believers give a tenth of their income to the place of worship. Now, guys, here's what I want to say to you about that, though. That when you get into the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't lower the bar. (laughs) Do we all understand that? Because I know Christians today are like, well, I don't need to tithe. That was an Old Testament thing. Or they say things like, well, I'm going to tithe of my time. No. Your time is not a tithe. Your time is a ministry. A tithe has to do with the tenth of your income. Well, see, we can't take God's word and say, well, I want it to say this. Oh, that's better. We don't do that. A tithe has never meant your time, ever, anywhere in Scripture. It always has to do with your wealth, your goods, your money, your income, your harvest. It's not your talent. Your talent's your talent. Your tithe is your tithe. Your time is your time. So people say, though, sometimes, like, well, the Old Testament, they gave a tithe, but I don't have to do anything. Well, let me just... Now, we're going to talk about tithing a little more next week, but what can we conclude already? I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you some questions. First, today, are we more blessed or less blessed than Old Testament believers? What would you say? More. I would agree with you. Let me ask you this. Today, are we more indebted or less indebted, would you say? I would say more, too. Are we more responsible or less responsible than Old Testament believers? Through Jesus. But do you guys get the point? All the way down the line, all the way down the line, if anything, in the New Testament, God raises the standard. Now, the only possible explanation of that is your tithe should be a rock-bottom minimum. In other words, you should tithe to the church and you should also give offerings beyond the tithe to take care of the poor and the needy and people that need help. That's where you start. That's the beginning. My goodness. Thank Jesus that he didn't just stop by giving a tithe. Can you imagine? No, he gave his life. You know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, a member of North Point Church, and they started sharing with me how they got tithing, and then they started tithing and seeing God begin to do a work in their life and in this overflowing joy in their heart, and then they started seeing how going beyond the tithe to take care of the needy, would, and, and he just had this amazing story. I didn't even plan to do this, but we're sitting at lunch, and I'm like, dude, could you tell your story to the church? And so he asked his wife, and she gave permission for them to tell the story, so watch this. This is pretty cool. Take a look. We didn't have the uh, discipline uh, to tithe, we were involved in a lot of volunteer work, uh, whether it was in the worship team or production. And I would go through and justify that I didn't need to tithe because we were doing other things. And a really great friend of mine just told me, you know what, you're wrong about that. It's biblical that you can't take certain parts of the Bible that you really like, like grace and unconditional love and and things that benefit you so, so much, and then say, Uh, I don't really love the part about that I need to give something and that I'm called uh, to do that. And so that really struck me, uh, that honesty and just feeling a little humbled that I wasn't living up to my end of the bargain and brought a change in, in my heart. At the time, it was kind of interesting because 
I had been laid off and I was brought back at 50% of my salary and Corbin's salary had been cut down to 40% and it was kind of a, an interesting time where we're like, are we gonna make our mortgage this month? I think we will, I'm not 100% sure. And so we sat down and Corbin's a big budgeter. So we looked at his, you know, our, our budget and sure enough, we're like, okay, we could try this. So we did a very small first offering or first tithe and I sat there and I wrote the check and I'm like, okay, this is gonna go okay. That first step I think is, is one of the hardest. It's put us on a path uh, way beyond what we could have ever anticipated mm -hmm. in that moment. As we did this on a regular basis, it was more and more to where we're like, yes, this is, this is our job. This is what we've promised to do. This is our commitment. And it also, it helps, you know, kind of bring that in when he went to start his own business and we went to one income, it didn't matter. We just said, this is what we're gonna do. This is our commitment. And it changed the way we viewed it. We went from having to do it and mm -hmm. feeling like this is our obligation to we, we really do love the act of tithing. We do love the act of giving. And it went from how much are we, how much are we giving this time? You know, how much is it? What's the number to, okay, what is it? Where are we going? And we saw change start to happen. We would have random moments where we'd be sitting there and someone would mention something in need in church. And we'd both be like, hey, we could do that one. So I'm my good friend uh, that I've worked with for 10 years on many different construction projects, uh, was involved with a one year ago working on a condo remodel. And we uh, found out that he was homeless. I allowed him to live at the condo while we were remodeling it and uh, in December, when we were going to uh, turn over the, the condo to new ownership, I was left in the situation of thinking about my friend uh, going back uh, onto uh, the street and trying to responsibly uh, answer that call of someone in need and what, what that looks like. Every single night we'd be laying there and he'd be like, what are we gonna do? We can't let him go. Like, what are we gonna do? There has to be an answer. There has to be something. And one of Corbin's favorite things to do is look at local real estate that most of the time we can't buy. And this random apartment had popped up and he was like, hey, we could do this. Uh, we had talked about it for maybe a year prior about uh, the opportunity to use the apartment for uh, women in need or someone that needs a temporary place to stay. And we would love to answer that call. Like, what do you think? This was, this was his idea. So it, the timing fell perfectly in place um, and Corbin finds this apartment and it closes at the exact same time that the other people moved in. So he didn't have to be without a place to live. It was just wonderful how, again, you pray about it, you see a need, we filled it just because we felt like it was the right thing to do. And we talked to Troy about uh, paying us a small amount for rent and being uh, having a safe place where he could go get, then get a full-time job and he'd have a, a good place to, uh, to be. And so uh, he is now working for uh, a company in town building tiny homes mm -hmm. and he's really excited about that. And uh, he's on a, a, a new path, I would say. Watching him now doing what he needs to do. His dog has a safe place, which is very important to him. So there's a place for his dog every single day and he's going to work every day and he is, you know, living up to 
our deal. When he hopefully some doesn't need us anymore, he can go and live on his own and, and do what he needs to do. And then we can use what we have to bless someone else. Now, you know what you're seeing there in that story? You're seeing human dignity. Dignity being played out by saying, Lord, how do you want to use the power of the resources that have been given me to invest in people? They gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. So tithe is a pretty cool thing. You give the tithe, you give beyond the tithe, you take care of people. Then there's not just the tithe, but write this down. There's your lifestyle that indicates are you giving what you should? Now, you say, well, what do you mean by your lifestyle? Well, I want for you to notice this. Look what it says in verse 3. We already read this, but look again. He says, for I testify they gave as much as they were able and even what? And even what? Beyond their what? Ability. What? What does that mean? It means they cut into their lifestyle. Something, and they must have done it, something remarkable here because it was remarkable enough that it said that they gave beyond what they were able. It says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing what? Joy. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. Now listen, guys, here's what I'd say to you. Here's the key. If your giving in no way affects your lifestyle, if it in no way at all puts any burden on you, then you're only giving God the leftovers on the plate. See, and here's why I say this. Because when I hear people t today, when they say, well, I can't afford to give, what we mean by that is, I can't afford to give without it burdening me. That's what we mean. And yet Jesus said our job is to bear each other's burdens. When people say today they can't give, usually what they mean is, is that they can't give or they won't be able to do something they want to do. But that's not the example that we see here. Listen, if you never give unless it doesn't burden you, how are you going to bear anyone's burdens? See, to give to the place where it affects your lifestyle is to feel a little bit of the burden of giving in some way. And of course, that leads to the third guideline, and that has to do with, write this down, your attitude. In other words, it might sound silly, but I don't want anybody here to give compulsory or out of guilt. I'm sure not trying to make anybody feel guilty. My goodness, I'm preaching it myself here. And I don't want anybody saying, oh my gosh, I'm so guilty, because, because here's what happens. When you start getting close enough to people's needs, you don't give out of feeling guilt. You should give out of joy, meaning you say, I get to be a part of this. I get to be involved in this move of God. I get to give and give into this. This is amazing. And that's overflowing joy that I get to be a part of God's eternal work. You know, I've been telling you guys, I, I gotta hurry and go fast, but, but I, I gotta tell you guys, I've been talking about uh, this work in Kerman, this gospel work that's happening in Kerman, this watch party that we haven't even launched as a church, but, you know, averaging 70 to 100 people. We baptized five in the milk tank uh, several weeks ago. We've had people go through membership. It all happening during COVID. Who plants churches during COVID? We do. People are saying shut down the churches. We've added one. 
And, uh, and so we're, uh, we got this thing, and so we've decided, check this out, for gospel work in Kerman, we haven't even told everybody this, but gospel work in Kerman, uh, we are officially going to launch them, and the whole city of Kerman's going to know it, Easter weekend of next year. They are going to be launched as a full-fledged, like, church. That's going to be amazing. But, now listen to this, listen to this. We're actually going to soft launch them a month before. We'll be asking you guys to go on out there and serve as much as you'd want to. And, but, here's the deal. This is a thing of faith. We're going to talk about in coming weeks because not only are we going to launch Kerman, it's an English-speaking service right now, but the very same day, we're going to launch Kerman English, we're going to launch Kerman Spanish, and we're going to launch Fresno Spanish all on the same day. Now, I got to tell you guys... I, I got to tell you when I say that, I feel like, see, we've needed Spanish service here in Fresno for a long time, and I feel like I'm with the people of Israel where God told them to go out in the water, and they had to step into the water before the sea would part. Sometimes God makes you step in deep water before he does a miracle. And I'm just saying, for me to tell you, we're actually launching three services at the same time, two Spanish. Yo no hablo espanol. So I need to say to you that, that that's a step of faith that we're going to make. If you know Spanish and you're a preacher, I'd love to know you. <laughs> but I got to tell you guys. I was sitting with a family and I was telling them about Kerman. They were asking about the vision of what we're going to do and I was sharing with them. By the end of that meeting, they pulled out their wallet and they said, the Holy Spirit's told us to do this and they handed me a check and they said, this is for gospel work in Kerman, and they gave me a $40,000 check. Isn't that amazing? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that impacted their lifestyle? Can you think of other things they could have done with $40,000? By the way, I'd like to say to you, these are not millionaires. These are not people that, well, that's nothing to them. I know these people. But they're people that believe that money needs to become your dignity. It's your liberation. It, it's here to bring you dignity, not your definition. And these are people that believe. What are the points again? That God owns everything and you and I are only a trustee. And Jesus gave everything so that we could give. And then here's the third principle as we're working their chocolate chips into the dough. Are you ready? Third principle will be done. You've got to remember this, guys. With all of your money, you can take it with you. <laughs> Write that down. Because people say all the time, well, you know, when I die, you can't take it with you. Oh, yes, you can. It's all about where you give it. No, you're not going to take your car to heaven, and you're not going to take your pocketbook and you're not going to take, but there are things that last into heaven, like people's lives, like the gospel, like the word of God, like your character. And if you start investing in things that are going to last, he goes on, verse 7, he says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see to it that you also excel in what? The grace of giving. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test you that you do that. Let's go on. He says in verse 14, he says, at the present time, 
your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And then there will be equality. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, be smart about this because you're going to give to people in need now, but you may be in need one day. (laughs) What's he saying? Write this down. He's saying, take the long view. Take the long view. But I'm saying to you, don't just take the long view. Paul was saying that. I'm asking you for more. I'm saying take the eternal view. And remember that everything that you give to the kingdom goes into work for eternity. I pray that for you. Guys, do you realize that every person here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to outlive the sun. You will still be alive when the sun is burnt out. An eighth of a billionth of your life is being spent here in these years. Nothing. It's a blink. But God says what you do now counts for then. So I pray we live with that in mind. Can I pray for you? And for me, Lord, we give our, uh, our lives to you. Lord, everything that's been said here today, we say in humility and earnestness. It's not out of judgment or superiority or a sense of uh, privilege. We're certainly not entitled, but it's because we want to be your co-laborers. We want to work with you, and you've planted us here. We're in Fresno. We're at North Point. We're here, and we want collaboratively to see you do a revival work that just changes the world. Would you help us to do that? God, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.